Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Guido Rar is the president and CEO of the Wild Salmon Center, an organization focused on the health of salmonoid populations of Canada, Russia, Mongolia, and the USA. Guido has helped the Wild Salmon Center raise over $100 million in grants, develop new scientific research, establish 8 million acres of habitat management designations, and that's only the start. He earned a Master's of Environmental Studies from Yale University and worked with several different conservation programs before diving full-time into his role at the center. In this episode of Anchored, Guido and I discuss his path to stewardship, fishing in Mongolia, Bristol Bay, and snakes. I was born in Portland, Oregon, in a large family, in a big family of really hunters and fishers, and we all would go fish the Deschutes like all the time. And we had a series of cabins on the Deschutes. We still do. And so my aunts and uncles and grandfather would all disappear all day and go fly fishing. And so that's how I got exposed to fly fishing. For trout, steelhead, both? For rainbow trout, red band trout. Yeah. So I was a little kid, kind of a strange little kid that was really obsessed with reptiles and amphibians. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And so that was my whole life until I was probably 11 or 12. And then... Uh, I, you know, was transfixed by the whole fly fishing thing. And if you're into critters, it's not a big leap to get into fishing and fish and hatches. So that was an easy step. But I remember as a little kid, you know, seeing my, the adults would disappear all day and they'd come back late and have a big dinner. And there were stories about tremendous trout lost and hooked and, and the excitement and that carried on late into the night. I was fascinated, but nobody would teach me how to fly fish. Oh, Why? Well, I was just this little punk, you know, and they had other things to do, and there were lots of kids. I mean, I was the oldest of five. And so about that time, I discovered a um, spinning rod, an Mm -hmm. ultralight spinning rod, and I showed up with a jointed Rapala, one of those little jointed Rapalas, and nobody 
did this on the Deschutes. I mean, it was fly fishing only. Was it frowned upon? Totally frowned okay. upon, but I didn't care. <laughs> they didn't teach me how to fly fish, so I just took <laughs> off with ultralight. And yeah. none of those trout had seen a jointed Rapala. Right. You know, those things are deadly. They're killer, yeah. Oh, my God. And so I just did a serious damage to the trout population, and they were immediately, they, they were, we have a problem on our hands here. <laughs> <laughs> Guido is working through all the big trout we've been trying to catch all summer. And they held a meeting and said, we've got to do something about this. This is terrorism. You know, give the man a flyer. And then finally someone said, we've got to teach him how to fly fish. So, <laughs> so that's how I got introduced. Now, did it stay in you? I mean, did you continue to fish growing up through school or through high school? Yeah, I mean, I was quite obsessed. So, oh yeah, I started fly fishing for trout and, and tying flies and, and, and was way into it. And, and then in college, I had a little TV show, a fly tying show. It ran for on and off for, boy, seven or eight years. What was it airing on? It was like cable access TV. And it was me tying flies for half an hour every week. All my professors or some of my professors watched it. What was it called? On the fly. Okay, of course. <laughs> it was, we had so much fun. It was just primitive TV, you know, two cameras, but it was fun. We had a great time. What were you taking in college while you were doing this? Oh, I was an English major. Okay. With, you know, a big focus on science. I mean, I was kind of had both in two worlds there. And I had my reptile collection, which I brought with me to college. So you really, oh, hold on. So you, you brought your reptile collection with you to college. So yeah. you really were kind of a, like an amphibian dork. I was a really strange kid. Okay. <laughs> Still am. Okay. <laughs> well, I had, you know, a pair of rattlesnakes in my dorm room, which was nobody knew about. Not live ones. Yeah. I had a pair of live rattlesnakes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, oh they were great. They okay. were great. What did I eat? Mice. I was afraid you were going to say yeah, that. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, or California mountain king snake. Ugh, ugh, sorry. Give They're, me spiders. Give me anything but snakes. Okay. Well, I'll not talk about snakes. And then I had a 12 foot reticulated python. Not in college. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In your room. Mm-hmm. People, but you weren't allowed to have that, were you? Well, I never asked. But <gasps> did you have a, a bunkmate or a roommate? No. No. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you would just go, did you ever bring girls back to your dorm yes. room? Yes. And then be like, surprise, this is... Um, so- <laughs> <laughs> it created some, you know, it was a challenge, but um, yeah, I didn't emphasize that part of my of my, uh, my passions. <laughs> yeah. You know, we'd go reptile collecting in the, in Southwest Oregon and uh, collect rattlesnakes and mountain king snakes and, and you know, I'd bring people down there and we'd bring them back and I'd keep them for a while and then let them go or the python I kept, its name, we called it Monty. So you went and found the python? Oh no, no, that was a mountain king snakes and the rattlesnakes we collected, I collected. Uh, Monty was a reticulated python and it was just part of my college life. I mean, everybody knew me, everybody knew Monty. And um I mean, there's so many stories. I mean, it was so Monty at one point in my college career, uh, Monty, I was between like dorms or, or rooms and I actually, I, I didn't have my cage. So I, Monty lived in a, a gym bag for a while, a university of Oregon gym bag. And it, and he would curl up and just lay his head on top. And it was a big snake, but in a gym bag, he basically could fill it and he was fine. They like that, those confined spaces sometimes. And when I fed it, I just unzip it and drop in a rat or a rabbit or something. Oh my God, you're killing me, Kito. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I got to tell one story. Yeah, yeah, go for it. (laughs) So, and it's funny, I haven't even thought about these stories in years and then they've come back up again, but I had a Spanish class and it was like my last elective I had to take to get my English major because we had to do two years of language and it was a summer class and it was just, I had to get this done. 
And it was the last day of class the next day, and I was up late with some friends, and I'm like, oh, darn, I've got to give a presentation for Spanish class. What am I going to talk about in Spanish? And then I looked down, and I saw the, the gym bag, and I'm like, I know what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to bring Monty to Spanish class and give a talk about pythons in Spanish. So I came in, and it was classic late summer, and everybody's kind of in their chair, you know, sleepy and not paying attention, and the teacher's kind of going on, and, and people start giving their presentations, and I was last, and I walked to the front of the of the class and put the gym bag on the desk and said, you know, mi nombre es Guido, quiero hacer un, una lectura sobre mi piton or mi culebra or something like that, and they're like, People kind of looked up, Culebra, Python, what is Guido doing? And I just unzipped the gym bag, and Monty just came out and went straight for the freaking light fixtures. What do you mean? What, what? The snake reared up, I mean, started to climb up, but he saw the light fixtures on the ceiling. This is a you know 12-foot python. And in a second, he was heading to the light fixtures. And so I'm just pulling, you know, coils of snake back and throwing them around my shoulders. Oh, my God. You're... <laughs> I'm never going to eat again. <laughs> I looked up. I looked up. And I'm trying to wrestle. It was a hot day, and snakes get more active when it gets hotter, warmer. And I pulled, um, I finally got Monty under control, and I looked up, and the entire class was flattened against the back of the classroom, <laughs> <laughs> inching towards the door. Oh, my gosh. Um, okay, wow. So it sounds like you've had a very interesting time in your years. How old are you now? Oh, my gosh. I'm 58. Are you really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Geez, you're like nearing sixty. Oh my gosh, you're <gasps> hurtling towards the abyss. <laughs> Do you, but you don't. You're not gray. Not, not really. I guess. Yeah. Wow, nice work. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about from from those years, though. What was your plan? What were you trying to achieve going to school and majoring in in English? So I was just interested in literature and loved to write. There was no really strategic career orientation there. I was just passionate about. You know, the great writers and Shakespeare and so on and so on. And then I got out of University of Oregon and I thought I could make a go with my little TV show. And it was harder than I thought. And I worked on the news as an outdoor reporter for a while and did some stuff for ESPN. And then um, I got a shot at moving to the Mexican tropics, to the cloud forest. Well, really the tropical forest of Chiapas, Mexico, working for the Nature Conservancy. And so, and I was into reptiles and amphibians, remember, and that is like ground zero for fauna diversity, for species diversity. And they gave me a chance and they said, you go down to Chiapas, Mexico, move to Tuxla Gutierrez and work with the Mexican uh, Institute of Natural History on setting up a plan for protected areas in the cloud forests of southern Mexico. So south of uh, the Isthmus of Tehuantepec in Mexico, the terrain changes more to be more Mesoamerica, Central America, and there's tropical rainforests. And then in the mountains, they become cloud forests, which are beautiful, misty forests of orchids and, and rare animals and frogs and cool stuff and giant butterflies and something called the Quetzalcoatl, which is a bird just related Quetzal. to the trogons, the Quetzal. I'm obsessed with them. I usually have a Quetzal on my neck, but it broke, my chain broke. Because I feel like the Quetzal is um, symbolic for not being... Well, the Guatemalans felt that the Quetzal was symbolic of not being able to be caged because they die in captivity. Yep. And that's... I've always related to that. So, I'm sorry. Continue. No, the Quetzal. I know. It's amazing. It's, and the Mayans worship the Quetzal. Yeah. It's an iridescent green and red bird that lives in the most beautiful forest in the Americas, really, and is very rare. And so, long story short, I moved to Mexico, worked for the Nature Conservancy... And that began my conservation career. 
and ended up in, after that in Mexico City, then in Washington, D.C. That took me into my 30s, uh, late 20s. And then I went back to graduate school. What were you doing with the organization? I was working to work with the Mexican organizations on setting up parks and protected areas to protect the cloud forests and the rainforests of Chiapas, Mexico. Oh, Dan, were you successful? Yeah, yeah. And the Mexicans, I mean, my job is to support the Mexicans, you know, financially, communications, build support in the United States, uh, publicity. And so it's really there for us. And so we were trying to help them. And are these places still protected? protected yeah. Wow, mm-hmm. that's really cool. Yeah, it is really cool. I mean, uh, when I went down there, Chiapas was literally on fire. So every year during the dry season, they're burning the forest to create, you know, fields for agriculture. Mm-hmm. And the, it's a environmental catastrophe down there. And, and it's, it's a real problem. So the protected areas become kind of a, a series of islands in a really deforested landscape. How long did you stay working with the Nature Conservancy? Well, we all left the Nature Conservancy in 1985 and formed a new group called Conservation International. Was there some reason why you guys all decided to up and leave? It's a long story, but it was just time for a new organization. And um, I was a very junior staff member, and we left and formed CI, Conservation International. And Conservation International went on to do amazing things. And I was there, but I ended up in D.C. and was kind of like a caged animal there a little bit, you know, just like anyone who loves to to fish and, and hunt would would feel or look for reptiles. And so, and so I went back you to grad school. You found lots of snakes, but yeah. not the kind you were looking for. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I yeah, went back to grad school and got a master's degree and then got a chance to really focus on the science, you know, because I was an English major and, 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 you know, kind of an amateur herpetologist or just, you know, grew up in that world, but I never had my conservation biology. So that gave me a chance to work on that. And that was great. I was so ready for grad school. And then that was two years. And then I moved back to Portland. At that point in my life, the whole decline of salmon was, it was becoming known, and this was 1991, it was apparent that the runs were declining throughout the Northwest. And so I said, I'm done with DC, I'm moving back to Portland, uh, moved back to Portland and went to work for a little group after grad school called Oregon Trout. And Oregon Trout was this feisty and very effective little organization with a staff of basically like four at that time that was the only group really focused on wild fish conservation in Oregon. And they were the ones that petitioned to list many of the first salmon and steelhead for protection under the Endangered Species Act, which started a huge regional effort to to restore salmon that has since become the largest species recovery effort uh, really in the human experience. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent trying to recover endangered salmon and steelhead in the Pacific Northwest in California. So at Oregon Trout, I got back into salmon, I mean, really a crash course in salmon conservation. And that was a very exciting time. Was that your job? Yeah. A paid job? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I was part of that team and, uh, you know, I helped the organization grow. And while at Oregon Trout, I had kind of an, an epiphany. And, and that is that we need the Endangered Species Act to protect species that are at risk of extinction. And we need those approaches but the Endangered Species Act is almost like the emergency room in a hospital, right? That's where you go when you're really in trouble. But we also need to find the populations of fish and steelhead and trout or, or whatever and protect them before they're in the kind of the extinction vortex. 
So we also need to protect them before they become endangered. And once they're endangered, and what we've learned from the endangered species experience is it becomes very expensive and difficult to recover them Mm -hmm. because the dams are in place or the water diversions. And so we need to do that. We need to continue to protect our endangered species. But we also need a complementary strategy to protect the ones that aren't in trouble yet because it'll be less expensive and, and, you know, to protect them on the front end and defend them against the inevitable threats that will come in the future. Mm-hmm. So prevention is key here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Were you successful in any of your, of your major projects there? Or, Oregon trout? Yeah. I mean, you hear about a lot of people who have a similar past, but they get really not just exhausted, but they feel like they're, they're constantly being defeated and eventually they go on to do other things. Were you feeling like you were being hit with more successes or defeats? Oh. Lots of defeats. But you, lots, you lots hung of, in there. I totally. <laughs> well, I mean, part of it, you know, a classic example of, look, in this business, you, you better get used to getting defeated, but you can't get down. You just, sometimes you need to get angry and come back swinging and be persistent. I think for good conservation work, it takes decades to get where you need to go. Okay, you that's good to hear this because I think a lot of people assume that they're going to get started into something that they, you know, that they are hoping for positive results. They get hit with a defeat and, or maybe two or three, and eventually they just, they feel so beat up that they slowly wither away and, and go and find something else to focus on. But you're saying that you need to stay focused and just keep at it. Oh, yeah. And nobody I work with, we don't do withering. I mean, I, I, I've never, seen that uh i mean i'm sure it happens but we're quite resolved i mean you you all just drink a lot (laughs) (laughs) well honestly what happens is you restore yourself on the river right i mean that's how you stay healthy you know one of the ways you stay healthy and for me i have to just clear my head i like to fish alone and i just half a day you know where i i find a chunk of time to do that and i come back re-energized so what was powerful for me in this whole experience of fighting to really protect some of the last best salmon and steelhead rivers in the Pacific Northwest was one place in particular really captured me. And those were the temperate rainforest rivers of Western Oregon, and in particular the Tillamook and Clatsop area of Northwest Oregon. So there's a 500,000 acre state forest that belongs to the citizens of the state of Oregon that also has some world-class salmon and steelhead rivers in it, the flow from it. Great runs of fall Chinook, some spring Chinook, winter, big winter steelhead, sea run cutthroat trout, a few chum, good coho in the fall. And I fish, that's where I fish. It's an hour and a half from my home. And, um, they're big, bright, beautiful fish right next to the ocean. No, very few dams. I mean, no dams. And so while this was all happening, plans were being made to clear cut the state forest. So I'm thinking, wait a minute, we're spending, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a year to recover the Columbia Basin salmon, for example, and then we're going to clear cut the place where they're still healthy on land that belongs to us. It's like, no, no, you're not. You know, this is, this, this is where I go. This is where my father went, my grandfather went. And so we threw ourselves and I threw myself into the fight to try to protect part of that forest and got defeated again and again and again. And was this all with Oregon trout? This was with Oregon trout. And then this transitioned into my next professional phase of my life. But I will say that it's been on the Tillamook, finally, and it's been 20 years, I have to say, we're now succeeding. It's not done yet, but but it takes that kind of time. And sometimes you have to lean into it until a political window opens that enables you to try to get protections. So it takes time. So that was a very stark uh, example. that This wasn't just some other river. This was my river. 
And, you know, the same thing happened on the Deschutes. You know, during my lifetime, I saw the steelhead runs, the wild runs, become replaced with hatchery fish. And then I saw hatchery fish dominate the spawning reds in the little stream next to our cabins on the Deschutes, where I could see those were clipped hatchery fish on the reds, not the wild ones anymore. And I remember what the wild ones looked like. They had their own look. You know, they were the native Deschutes steelhead. They looked like kind of a bullet shape, and they just went completely nuts if you hooked one. You know, they were strong fish. And, of course, they'd be strong because they come in in the summer and they basically have to go five months without eating, and then they have to fight with each other over the spawning beds. So the stuff, you know, there were some personal uh, moments when it all was crystallized, and those are the kind of things that motivate me and, and all the other people that care so much about this stuff, and I know you too. Talk to me about the next step in your career. So what happened was this this realization uh, that we need to target the strongholds. That I learned that and I felt that at Oregon Trout, and I was given projects to try to explore that idea. And I couldn't get it really going because we were also filing petitions to list fish under the Endangered Species Act. So people really hated us. You know, it was like the, we were just on the end of the spotted owl old growth fights. And now here comes Oregon trout petitioning more. And so people were not receptive to, it was just a harder uh, platform for me to launch that strategy, the stronghold strategy. And then I wrote some papers about it in the technical literature. And then I had this idea that, you know, you could really do this internationally in, in kind of the same way that a group called Conservation International, where I used to work, had done this to protect rainforest hotspots. So what, con- what we did at Conservation International was look at the 20% of the planet that has the greatest concentration of biodiversity and say, we're just going to focus on these places. We call them the hotspots. Well, I looked at the Pacific Rim and said, my gosh, there's salmon hotspots along the northern Pacific Rim. And instead of just looking at Oregon, let's look internationally and, and do, use kind of the same strategy and focus on the very best, the ones that are the least threatened today, and protect them. And about that same time, I met a remarkable man named Peter Soverell. And Pete's the founder of the Wild Salmon Center. When had he started it? He started it in 1994 with Tom Perro. And what year are you talking when, when you met him? 1998. So, 1997. Okay, so three years after he had founded it. Yeah. Okay. And Pete had started a project with it in Kamchatka called the Kamchatka Steelhead Project, which is still very successful and still going. And he was doing that project. He didn't have a you know a paid staff or anything. And I said to Pete, how about if I'm your executive director? And he said, great, come on. And I said, I've got this idea. And I gave him this memo that described the stronghold strategy in a Pacific Rim-wide network. And Pete is just an amazing guy. He's like, let's do it. You know, let's go for it. He's not the kind of guy that says, I can think of 10 reasons that's not going to work, because you could probably think of 20. But Pete's all forward momentum. And he said, let's go for it. So Pete and I together grew this idea. And I started fundraising. And I'm trained as a fundraiser from Conservation International days. So I was able to get the foundations to, to help us. And we got going. And then Pete eventually formed a separate group called the Conservation Angler, and that's now where the Kamchatka Steelhead Project lives. And uh, the Wild Salmon Center started embarking on the strategy. Now, as it turns out that before I met Pete, I was I was one of the first Americans to go to the Russian Far East looking for a fish. And I've got a very good friend over there named Mikhail Skopets, who's a field biologist. And so Misha and I, in 1993, went to Kamchatka, and which was an amazing experience, and the Sea of Ohotsk region. And later I asked Skopets 
to lead um, rapid assessment teams of scientists to go find the most extraordinary salmon rivers in the Russian Far East and do assessments and come back and say, which, which are the crown jewels? And he did that and, and brought back riveting reports of spectacular and rivers that had never been fished by Westerners or fly fished, for example. And so then we said, okay, how can we work with the Russians to protect these rivers? And the reasoning is this, and the message to the Russians was this. In the Pacific Northwest, we once thought we'll always have salmon. You know, they're everywhere, right? We, yeah. Yeah. Sacramento, San Joaquin, Klamath, Columbia. And everybody said, you know what, you know, we don't need to worry about this. But there was one guy who did worry about this. Now, I'm going back in time now to about 1890. Okay. Okay. Going back 100 years, 150 years. And this guy was named Livingston Stone. And he was a retired Unitarian minister who was fish-obsessed, okay, like we are. But he saw that we needed to set aside some rivers. He said, not all of them, but we need to set aside a few while we still can. And he made this speech to the American Fisheries Society saying, listen, I'm saying as the buffalo disappeared and as the other species disappeared, the salmon too will disappear unless we decide now to create some refuges for salmon. He was right on top of it. Well, he was totally, and it was so prophetic. And he said, and once the damage has been done, it'll be impossible to bring them back again. You know, it's really hard. And guess what? We didn't set aside any rivers, and now we're spending hundreds of millions to try to bring them back, and we're systematically replacing our wild fish with hatchery fish, uh, which are, have an important role in a lot of places. But it's it's a battle that we're struggling to maintain. So... With this speech in my briefcase and this idea, we went to Russia and said, you know, we have made some real mistakes. Maybe you can learn from some of our mistakes. Because Russia is a proud country and they have remarkable scientists and they have 40% of the world's salmon are on that side of the Pacific Rim. And so over the last uh, 15, 17 years, we've been very carefully, very patiently working with our Russian partners. And the Russians then have this concept and they took it and, and have done scientific workshops, so it's a, a Russian strategy to protect the last great rivers. And one by one, some of these rivers have now moved into their protected area system. Have you had a hard time, though, getting them on board? Because, yeah, I mean, you can learn from, or they can learn from America's mistakes, but America hasn't shut down any of their rivers, have they? Well, not um, not in the way that the Russians have shut down theirs. It's not a matter of shutting down. It's a matter of a kind of a land use decision. You know, so the Russians realize that let's get a few of these really remarkable ones and we'll put it in our national or regional park system. Just because they're, they're important for salmon, but they're also important, you know, for Siberian tigers or brown bears or Stellar's eagles. You know, so they're doing this and they're making a decision. You know, we're going to develop this landscape. But let's let's draw some circles on the map and and help protect them. So, what sort of restrictions are there for anglers? Because I know that with the Kamchatka program, isn't that a river that you can't even fish unless you're part of the science program? That's true. But these other places, there's no restrictions on on sport fishing, you know, or mm. really not much on commercial. It's a habitat protection designation. So, if your goal is to protect a place for decades, you've got to protect the habitat. That's one series of strategies. And then you've got to protect the fish. And those are different. You know, those are management strategies. And so catch and release fly fishing or, you know, low impact sport fishing, uh, well managed commercial fisheries are not at odds. It's really if you allow a big gold mine to be built in the headwaters, that's, or a dam, those things are kind of almost existential threats. 
Do, can you think of a river in America where you feel like we've been really successful in mm. in keeping it maintained as it may have been hundreds of years ago? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, there are a few, but we have an Achilles heel. Um, let's start in Oregon. You know, the Smith River in southwest Oregon, northwest California, is pretty darn close because most of it's on public land. And there are the upper watersheds of the rivers on the or- western Oregon are really great shape. Um, there's not as much old growth forest. Uh, the Tillamook and Clatsop, after all the years of work, is, you know, it won't be like it was 200 years ago, but it'll have healthy wild salmon runs if we do everything right. There's a chance there. Um, the Olympic Peninsula has terrific rivers, including like the Elwha, where the dams came out. They just are have pumping so many hatchery fish into those systems, it's a problem. And they're killing so many fish in, in the fisheries. So sometimes you can have the habitat, but you don't have the fish. So what we're doing as an organization is we're looking at each part of the Pacific Rim, from Northern California up the Oregon coast, the temperate rainforests of Oregon, and then north to the Washington coast. And those beautiful temperate rainforest systems, these are coastal systems with dug fir and western red cedar and winter steelhead and fall chinook type systems. And then up the British Columbia coast to where there's the Dean River in British Columbia, which you know, this is your home water, and the Skeena. And I'm going to walk you up the Pacific Rim and down the other side. Before we dive into walking me up the fisheries up the coast, which I obviously, I mean, that's why we're sitting down. I really want to talk to you about that. Mm-hmm. I just want to get a little bit, uh, wrap my head around what Pete's organization was. Besides Russia, what were your, what was your focal point in North America? So when Pete started the organization with just the Kamchatka Steelhead Project, and then I wrote this memo and said, Pete, we can build an international kind of archipelago of strongholds across the Pacific Rim. And he said, let's do it. And so I started fundraising. And the first thing we did was Kamchatka. So there was really no other program but the Kamchatka Peninsula. And so we realized Kamchatka is extraordinary. And should I describe Kamchatka a little bit? Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, God, I mean, flying over there for the first time was going back into a time machine. This would have been 1993 for me. There there was only two or three Americans, maybe none that had been there. I don't even know who'd been over there yet, but Scopettes and I traveled around. It was this remarkable landscape with towering volcanoes. I mean, Kamchatka is kind of like the lost world. There are 30 active volcanoes in Kamchatka. Oh, wow. 30 active. You can smell the sulfur from the smoke from those things in the cockpit of the plane as you approach the airport in Petropavlovsk. It's like crazy. And there are the biggest sized brown bears outside of Kodiak Island in the world there. There's just, it's an amazing stronghold for bears. There's giant eagles, the Stellar's eagle, which is the world's largest bird of prey. Um, and so it's this amazing place. And the rivers of Kamchatka are pristine and they're full of fish. And so we realized, well, how's a tiny little group like Wild Salmon Center going to make a difference in Kamchatka? Well, about that time, a friend of mine from graduate school called me, and he said, Guido, I'm working for the United Nations Development Program, and we're doing a project in Kamchatka. The Who United was Nations Development Program. Was it Mark, was it? Johnstad? Yeah. It was his best friend, Jeff Griffin. Oh, okay. <laughs> <Small> world. <laughs> yes. And Jeff and I were at Yale together, and he said, you know, we need to look at the salmon part of it. And I said, well, you should hire me. So they contracted me and I became a contractor uh, with U- the UN. And we started a series of meetings with the Russians to talk about how to get support for their park system. 
And I said, you simply can't succeed with your park system unless you secure the health of the salmon runs. And they said, well, I think that's true. And I said, you know, you have a chance to do what we never could do, which is set aside whole rivers uh, for conservation. And in fact, in western Kamchatka, the west side of Kamchatka, has a series of rivers that have, they're completely pristine, have extraordinary levels of abundance. In fact, the highest levels of abundance of any salmon rivers that are non-lake, non-lake salmon rivers, like Bristol Bay, those are lake systems that we know of. I mean, millions of fish coming in in waves, you know, 24 hours a day, just like fish factories. You're talking Pacific salmon right I'm now. I'm talking about Pacific salmon. Because I know it, a lot of people hear Russia and they think Atlantic salmon, but we're talking the other side. We're talking the other side. Do they have all the Pacific salmon species? Yes, exactly. So I was just going to say, in these rivers, you had Chinook, Coho, Chum, Pink, river-spawning sockeye, so that's all five, and then um, Asian masu salmon. Or cherry salmon. I was going to ask you that. Okay. Yes, beautiful fish. They look like mini Chinook. Mm. And then steelhead, rainbow trout, Asian white spotted char, and um, Dolly Varden's Havlinus malma. So that was the greatest diversity of salmonids occurring together anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. So long story short, the Russians were very passionate about this idea. And out of that process, we got the Russians designated under their leadership, the coal a salmon refuge, which is a 550,000 acre watershed in Western Kamchatka that has all these species. And it has the greatest number of salmon species of any protected watershed in the world. And it's still there and they're protecting it. And the importance with all of these kind of projects really comes into play when you realize how as time marches on, threats come. And so three watersheds or four watersheds to the north is another extraordinary river that's like it, that I've had a harrowing exploratory float trip on called the Kutagorova. And uh, Pete and I set up some camps there one year and explored it with some scientists. Well, the Kutagorova is now the site of a massive proposed coal mine. And I remember seeing chunks of coal washed up on the gravel bars and had that feeling. And so this is the the substrate to a lot of the need and understanding of the urgency of all of this stuff because time, you know, 10 years is nothing, you know, and, and it's only been a, a century since we destroyed these salmon runs and now we're desperately struggling to recover them. And so it's just a matter of time before all these rivers are threatened. And so if you find a river that's, you say it's not threatened today, well, guess what? You know, the global population is going from seven to nine billion by 2050 and we're seeing an explosion in the global middle class, mostly from China. And they are very have high demands, as we do, for water and food. And the, the threats are going to increase dramatically. Seafood demand alone is going to double by 20, I think it's 2050 globally. So my only point is, if you have a chance to save a river, it may be in the middle of nowhere right now, but in a few decades, it won't be. Are you guys using that river in Russia as a control? So you can look at you know what numbers were... In 1993, which feels like yesterday, <laughs> so, compared to what they are now, what yeah. kind of data do you have when you look at it as a control? Yeah, that's a good question. So we did that right after it was designated. We did a thorough analysis of abundance, species diversity. Uh, we looked at the nutrients from the salmon runs in the vegetation and the flows of nutrients. And we found that the marine nutrients were just pumping into that system and we're feeding the whole system. It was like a big nutrient pump, those runs of pink. I mean, huge pink and chum runs. So we gathered the data. 
but we haven't done anything since then. But we have that data because we knew over time it would be the, a place to, you know, it was one of the last chances to get into a system in its pristine state. So you haven't done another assessment since then to see no, how it no. is? No, no, and I don't think it would show a whole lot yet, but we can look at the Krutogorova and compare it if the coal impacts the Krutogorova. You know, that's a really good question, April. Um, that's something that would be really great to do, even today, would be to do a comparison. Yeah. yeah. So then how did, where, talk, talk to me about the first moment where you had the spark of motivation to bring what you were doing there here in North America. Well, we looked at the map and we'd realized that if we're really focused and focus on some key rivers and are willing to stay there for decades and focus on strategies that are not going to blow away, right? And more critically focus on what's it really going to take to deliver these systems to our grandkids and kids. You know, that means what can you do to defend them for th- for over a decade? So we fell upon a three-part strategy. Get as many protected areas designated as we can, or riparian rules, or land acquisitions, or whatever. And think of that as, as layers of armor. One, get the habitat protected before they find a gold mine, or before they want to build a dam, because then you're creating a defensive perimeter. The second, come up with strategies to keep the fish wild and managed well. You know, don't have any hatcheries created in these places if you can. Have management and escapement levels, a good scientific basis for those. But third, and most critically, help support local groups or create local. We've created like eight new organizations, but like back groups that are there. It doesn't need to be Wild Salmon Center. It needs to be Skeena Wild. Those guys just kill it. They don't need us to tell them what to do. They could use some help, though. And so we're all about backing those groups and helping them defend those places for the long run. Since we've hit on that strategy, it's just been the, we've been able to accomplish a lot. Did you bring it to California first? No, we've, we haven't really done a whole lot in California. We got California to adopt the stronghold strategy, meaning that they should, they, they've decided to prioritize certain rivers in each geography of California. But there's good groups down there uh, supporting that stronghold strategy, which we helped them adopt, and the Fish and Wildlife Commission adopted. But we don't have a, a, a real program there right now. What state have you done the most work in? Well, Oregon. So the, we're in coastal Oregon. So those are the strongest wild salmon runs south of Canada on the Oregon coast and in the Klamath-Siskiyou region of southwest Oregon, northwest California. Because the Smith River and, frankly, the eel in California are very strong wild fish sanctuaries. So we're on the Oregon coast, and we've gotten a lot done there. And then the Olympic Peninsula, and then in, in British Columbia on the Dean. Yeah, yeah. Walk me up this coastline, like okay. You said it. It's just it's it's just a beautiful image when you think about the Pacific Rim. So visualize a beautiful arc that extends from Northern California up across the Northern Pacific and down to the Russian Far East, because most maps cut it in the middle. And it is a beautiful and vast arc of land and water that you can see from space. Looking at it from a satellite picture, you know, underneath the swirling clouds that go across the Pacific. And it really starts in the beautiful forests of Northern California and goes up. And the whole coastal strip from California north to Alaska are really temperate rainforest systems. So big, dense forests of Douglas fir and, uh, you know, big leaf maple and western red cedar and so on. And then you climb up to the great rivers of British Columbia. And frankly, the Dean and the Skeena are some of the two of the very best. Most of the big rivers south of there have been really damaged. 
and it's it's tragic. And even now the Fraser mm. is is suffering. So we've really the skin is not. I mean, the skin is in, is in excellent condition. Really, it's the size of Switzerland that basin. So as far as a place to focus on conservation, it's ground zero. I mean, the best you know, this the best Chinook runs, probably the best Chinook runs in the world right now. It's going to be between that and the Nishigak, probably in Alaska. The best steelhead runs in the world are on the Skeena and all the other species. So the Skeena, and then you climb north into Alaska, and there's the, um, you know, I won't go into great detail. There's some issues with the transboundary rivers in, in southern Alaska and British Columbia that we're quite concerned about mining. And then there's the Bristol Bay uh, and the Aleutian Island chain extending out across the Bering Sea. And then as you look at the map, you go across the Bering Sea, and there's Kamchatka, uh, like a giant spear extending south from Russia uh, into the Pacific. And it's the size of California. I mean, this is the kind of scale. And then to the west of Kamchatka, you have the Sea of Ohotsk, which in Russian means the hunting sea, and a vast and beautiful landscape that has very low human population density, and where you can fly you know, for days in a helicopter and not see a single road. In fact, the only way to get around over there is by Russian Mi-8 helicopters. <laughs> and so then you extend, continue to go west until you hit the mainland of the Russian Far East and Habarovsk and Sakhalin Island, which is just north of Japan. And then you go a little south and you can see Japan with Hokkaido and the main island and the Sea of Japan. So this whole arc is the land of the salmon. I mean, it's salmon nation. And salmon are the keystone species to support all the animals and the people, and especially the indigenous people in all these watersheds. And each of these places has a remarkable story. I am staring at a map that you've brought here of the North Pacific. And on it, there are about 25 red zones. And these are, I'm assuming these are zones that the Wild Salmon Center is working in. Those are the strongholds. And those are the, really the last best salmon, steelhead, trout, char, taman rivers in the world. When you say stronghold, that's something that you were talking about earlier that the Wild Salmon Center has put together. Is, is a stronghold inclusive of those three components that you were talking about? Yeah, a stronghold is a place. And it simply means... In each region, these are the, the strongest remaining uh, populations of fish and the best remaining habitat. And the idea is the cost or the effort to protect those is, is relatively low compared to the more damaged systems. So they're the places that we think we can actually get long-term protection. Okay, and I will include an image of this when I post this. I know that on the podcast, if you're listening on iTunes, there's no image there. But if you go to themeateater.com, where all my podcasts are stored, I will have an image of this map included in the write-up. So just head on over there and look for the map. But, Guido, let's go ahead and start left, and we'll start to work our way right. We're not going to go through all 25 regions, just because we don't have Mm -hmm. forever. But some of these regions, just so people listening uh, know, some of these regions, I will sit down with people in that region specifically to talk more about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's just start with the with the Kopi. How do you pronounce that? The Kopi in Russia. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the Russian side of the Northern Pacific Rim is kind of a mirror image of the North American side of the Pacific Rim. You know, the North American side really goes from Alaska down to California in a big arc. Well, the other side of that arc is really the Russian Far East, and the difference is <laughs> the Russian Far East looks like North America did two hundred years ago. It's still pristine, and that's going to change. 
uh, you know, like everything's going to change during our lifetime and beyond. So we discovered a few rivers, and I say we, you know, we have great Russian partners, the Habarovsk Wildlife Foundation, Sockland Environmental Watch, the Russian Salmon Fund, and so we work with our Russian scientists and Russian partners, so it's really an international effort. But we found a river on the Sea of Japan, not too far north of Japan. It's on the Russian side. It flows into the Pacific Ocean just north of Japan. It's called the Kopi. And it's about a five or 600,000-acre watershed. But it's unusual that it has extraordinary salmon populations. So it's the best remaining place in the world for cherry salmon, or masu. It has chum. It has pink. It has coho and char. But it also has a very mysterious and ancient type of salmon called the taman. Now, the taman, this has a, a species of taman, and some say it should be its own genus, that's even stranger and weirder than the taman themselves. And the taman are a type of Asian trout, basically. Uh, the genus is called hucho, and I don't mean to get too sciencey. No, but no, no, but the, just people who have never heard of it don't realize how big of a trout <laughs> we're This is talking. a trout that gets to be big enough to feed on adult salmon. And that's what they've evolved to do. And so that these fish routinely get to be 100 pounds in size. So look at the taman as the taman is to uh, the family Salmonidae, the same dis- relationship the trout and you know brown trout, rainbow trout have. And they look like a big bull trout, frankly. But the taman in the kopi are sea-run taman. So they go to the ocean, and then they come back to feed on the salmon in the river. And they look really like a sea-run brown trout with lots of fine spots. They're very elusive and very strong. And few uh, Westerners have ever caught them on flies. But uh, they're a ferocious and fascinating fish. And genetically, they're more closely related to Atlantic salmon than they are to Pacific, where they have some genes that have a strong affinity with the Atlantic side. All this is to say is that they're one of the most ancient members of the salmon family. Well, in this river, in addition to the taman, are grizzly bears, wolves, spectacled bears, Russian equivalent of elk, roe deer, wild boars, and Siberian tigers, all living in the same watershed. Sounds so safe. Just go for like a a casual walk in the park. You find yourself looking over your shoulder a lot. And so it's just wild. I mean, it's the the combination of species is incredible. And of course, they all those things, including the tigers, eat the salmon when they come back. And there's native people there, indigenous people, the Udige and the Oroch that have been there forever. And so we're working with the Russians to support the protection of this whole watershed, and we've basically achieved it. That's something I'm very, very proud of. To the north of that are another series of watersheds that are even more remote, and this is the Russian Far East, north of Habarovsk. So if you look at a map, it's kind of the, it's just on that Russian side north of Habarovsk, hundreds of miles north, are a series of vast and completely wild river systems that are really some of the last completely pristine, undamaged, whole salmon watersheds anywhere in the world, frankly. And these rivers, and I'm talking about a river called the Nimalin, a river called the Tugur, and a river called the Uda, have um, runs of pink and chum salmon, and they also have taman, but they're a different species than the uh, kopi. They're not the sea-run taman. These are called Siberian taman. And they get to be big, but they get to be even bigger. And we are fascinated by this. And of course, as a fly fisher and an angler, I'm quite fascinated by it. I felt, you know, in the interest of science and conservation, someone needs to determine if they'll take a fly. 
And so, <laughs> poor so you. Your I'm, job is so hard. It's tough. It's tough. <laughs> no, but it's really interesting. There are, there are questions. If we could transition some of these fisheries to catch and release fisheries, we could help support the local economy and gather important data on the fish. And so, what I mean is, so we've been able to get. Uh, access to these rivers and are leading trips and working with Russian businessmen and fishermen to promote fly fishing and catch and release on these rivers and try to determine if they, if it is a, a viable fly fishing location. And it is. And these taimen do take flies. And then the question becomes, what's the status of the population of taimen? So we've learned that every fisherman wants to take a picture of the fish he catches, whether you're a Russian or an American or whoever, and that the spots on the taimen's head uh, never changed during its life. And the same thing's true with rainbow trout and brown trout. So it's like a fingerprint. So if we can create a database of photographs of these taimen from any one of these rivers and grow that database large enough, eventually we'll start to recapture some of the same fish. And from that, statistically, we can use that information to determine population size and the movements and a little bit about the ecology and the genetics of each of those fish. So the Russians are now supporting this, and we're launching this project now on, on the Tugur River, where every fish is now photographed and creating a database so we can monitor the health of the population. But what we have learned is these taimen grow kind of the same as a Mongolian, for example, taimen would or any other taimen, until they get to be about 40 pounds. And, you know, that takes years. I mean, I, th- I think that's 15 or 20 years of life. These are old fish. But at that moment, they get to be big enough to take down an adult chum, salmon. And once they start feeding on chum, then we see the growth rates, you know, 50 pounds, 60 pound fish, 70 pound fish, 80 pound fish, 90 pound fish. <laughs> Last year, Matt Sloat, our chief scientist, landed a 102 pound taman. I saw it. It looks like it's part of a, I mean, it looks like a, it's a monster. It's like, it's like Jurassic. He Park. caught that on the fly? Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, I tied the fly that morning. We've got a pattern that imitates grayling. And, uh, and it's, and it's, well, you, you know, the reality with these taimen is you, you do fish all day for a grab, you know, for a fish. So it's not like you're catching them left and right. I mean, they're an apex predator. And frankly, Matt and I fished a week and we caught six fish between the two of us for a week. But if you're doing it for science, why not just go ahead and put on a plug or, or put on, you know, fish conventional gear and try to get as many fish as possible? You totally can. Absolutely. And that's what most of the people are doing. And, and that's fine. I mean, I would prefer they use single hooks instead of troubles, but one step at a time. And for the, in Russia, getting them to think about catch and release is a completely foreign concept. I mean, they're still eating, they're still eating grizzly cubs over there. Oh, really? Yeah. My husband was there. Long story short, he came back and he was like, yeah, we ate baby grizzly bear. And I just thought they were far, I thought they were past that. <laughs> well. <laughs> Unless I'm not supposed to be talking about that. And, no, and no, it's no. like illegal, but. I'm, I, I just, I, I don't know about that, <clears throat> but I know that, you know, frankly, that a lot of the people that live in these remote rivers don't have the luxury to think about, you know, catch and release fly fishing, you know, yeah. but if they could develop these fisheries, they could create some useful tourism economic impact mm-hmm. and, Frankly, I mean, there's a chance to help protect these rivers in the salmon runs before. Now, the threat over there is illegal salmon fishing from poachers. And so every year by Mi-8 helicopter or by these Russian kind of tanks, they're these Russian half-tracks or recycled weapons carriers that have big tank-like tracks on them, every river in the Russian Far East, people go and they set up camps and there's illegal fishing 
gill net fishing or purse seining. And the, the goal is to get salmon caviar. And the runs are still so productive that you can fill um, huge tanks with salmon caviar and kill many, many thousands of fish. And this is you know, devastating the salmon runs on all these rivers. Did the Mongolians and or the Russians historically eat taimen? Yes, they still do. Okay. They st- both, not, both? I don't know about the Mongolians, but the Russians do. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecovis store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. So this is a, you know... This is a long-term project that, you know, the taimen have been overfished almost all, all over Russia and Mongolia. You know, these giant fish could be 30 years old, so you just don't see them. And the last ones that, that really have the giant taimen are these rivers that I'm talking about. The ones closer to Khabarovsk and Vladivostok have been overfished because there's not this ethic of catch and release. So what we're doing is working with the Russian Salmon Fund to promote catch and release. You know, look, in Wisconsin... Uh, in, the, in the United States, people used to kill muskies. Uh, nobody kills muskies anymore. So I'm optimistic that over time we can build more of an, an ethos around catch and release with the with the Russians. But why don't they kill muskie? I mean, the muskie population isn't endangered in a lot of places. Is it more of a cultural thing where it's kind of poo-pooed? Well, they don't kill muskie because uh, they're not muskies are never super abundant anywhere, and they're long-lived species, and people just want to catch them more than once. You know, so if you, if you do catch and release, you get bigger fish and you get more economic, you know, you get better fishing. Okay. So are you guys trying to, trying to take that same sort of viewpoint of the muskie and, and install that in Russia then? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Say, look, especially with the outfitters. And, and this is, you know, I don't want to un, understate the hill that we're trying to climb here. <laughs> yeah. Because catch and release is a foreign concept, but we just simply have to start. And working in Russia or doing any sort of forward moving in, Russia can, I would imagine, be difficult. It's it's very difficult, but we simply have to do it. I mean, they they don't even have a modern licensing system where you get a sport fishing license. I mean, that's basically uh, this is terra incognita, you know, for modern fishing. And there's some very enlightened Russians that are very good with conservation and 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 promoting this through the Russian Salmon Fund. It's now called the Russian Salmon Partnership in Moscow. In particular, Ilya Sherbovich 
who lives in Moscow, and he owns the camps on the Panoy River, on the Kola. He's one of Russia's great fishermen and fly fishermen and very passionate about this. So we're not going to change this overnight, but in a few places, maybe we can we can try, and that's what we're doing. Over the years, I've heard rumor of people running into problems with the mafia and maybe some some corruption. Have you guys had to deal with any of that? You know, we really haven't. And and it hasn't touched us. And all of our work is is authorized through a U.S.-Russian agreement called Area 5. It's like a treaty. So we really directly have not had to deal with too much of that. But um, it's kind of like the Wild West over there in the Russian Far East. Well, let's come over into our Wild West. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at the map here, and I see this enormous spot over by Bristol Bay. Can you talk to me about that? So, you know, Alaska and Bristol Bay is kind of like Mecca. I mean, if you're a salmon fisherman or a Pacific salmon fisherman or a big trout fisherman, most people find some time in their life to go to the rivers that flow into Bristol Bay. So this is western Alaska. North of the Aleutians is a big kind of bite taken out of western Alaska. And in that bite are a series of rivers that flow from the mountains into the ocean, Bristol Bay. They flow west. And they generally all have big lakes that were once glaciers. And at the end of the Pleistocene, those those big glaciers melted and created these vast lakes and this gravelly river bottoms, which are perfect for salmon spawning. And in those lakes and in those rivers, I'm talking about the Nushigak and the Quijak and the Lagnac and a series of other rivers, uh, these rivers produce the biggest salmon runs in the world. I mean, there were 60 million sockeye that came back to Bristol Bay last year. I mean, that's the, the Columbia River at its peak had 16 million, maybe 20. And again, those were the Columbia really is a, is a, a steelhead, Chinook, to a lesser extent, coho system. It's a different kind of system. It's not a lake system, but Bristol Bay has those big lakes. And in those big lakes, sockeye need lakes. They, they rear in lakes as juveniles. So it's a salmon, it's the global salmon factory. And that protein flow of those 60 million fish, and the Nushigak has got hundreds of thousands of Chinook. I think it's the biggest remaining wild Chinook run that I'm aware of. And so this is a, this is important. I mean, it's important obviously because we love fish and that experience. And it's critically important to the tribes of Bristol Bay that have been there forever that depend upon those fish. And it's critically important to the commercial fishermen who make a living, but it's important for us as you and me and anybody, because this is one of the last sources of wild protein to feed humans, and it's healthy, free, wild protein in a world where half of the fish today are raised in fish farms. You know, mm. So this is a priceless thing. And the irony in, with Bristol Bay is that against this backdrop, and, and the, the economic impact of Bristol Bay salmon fisheries is $1.5 billion a year. So this is not a peripheral thing. And this is, you know, many lodges, you know, fishing lodges. So 15 years ago, a Canadian company discovered a deposit of copper and gold in the headwaters of Bristol Bay that was massive. They couldn't even initially find the bottom of it. A huge deposit of copper and gold, which has now become called uh, the Pebble. And they proposed a mine called the Pebble Gold Mine for this deposit. And this is in the headwaters of Bristol Bay. It's a Canadian company. And now the the project to build this huge mine is controlled by a company called Northern Dynasty. And it's a Canadian Canadian company. A lot of these mining companies are Canadian companies. And so this this project threatens the future health of Bristol Bay and those salmon rivers. The problem with gold and copper mines is they create acid mine drainage 
because of the um, the process of making and breaking down the ore and getting the gold and copper, it creates these huge piles of uh, tailings, which are just rubble. And when water hits that, acid stuff comes out. And anyone who knows acidity in the pH scale is critical for the health of a salmon system or any aquatic system. You can totally ruin it by just changing the acidity. You know, that's why you can have a northern Wisconsin. You can have a lake that's got high levels of acidity and you'll get a smallmouth bass that's 20 years old and is 17 inches long, you know. And so in Bristol Bay, if you really want to mess with those lakes downstream from that mine, do that. Build a gold mine upstream. Now, the problem with this gold mine is all that junk never goes away. It stays there forever. So the mining company comes in, builds the mine, creates a mess, makes a bunch of money, and then they're gone. And the problem with these mines, in addition to the the persistent leakage of acid mine discharges, if there's an earthquake and the tailings dam breaks, all that junk goes sliding downstream into our stronghold for co- uh, for sockeye and chinook and all the other species. It makes no sense. And uh, this I've never seen in my professional career, a greater insult or threat or affront to a just spectacularly beautiful and productive landscape. But there is so much money in this that is that they, they put so much money in, you know, into the political system and everything that we're losing the battle right now. It's just incredible. How can a company not be responsible for removing their rubbish? I mean, you don't see construction teams going out there building high-rises and leaving all the scaffolds. You know, they the the tailings and the mess always stay, as far as I understand, it always stays on the project site with these. You don't ship it somewhere else. And it creates a mess that lasts forever. So we saw in Mount Paul, you know, in British Columbia, we've had tailings dam collapses that were catastrophic. One just was, uh, one collapsed in Brazil and 150 people were, were killed. This area is one of the most tectonically active areas along the Pacific Rim, meaning there's lots of earthquakes. It's right on the fault line. It's called the Lake Clark fault line. So this mine is a, you know, is poised to be built in a, in a tectonically active area upstream from the greatest salmon fishery in the world. Now, the irony is we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars trying to recover the Columbia River salmon and the Sacramento River salmon and hundreds of millions in Puget Sound to try to bring our salmon back while we're going to let a company build this and upstream from the best salmon rivers left in the world, which are on U.S. territory. And I just it just is extraordinary to me. For 15 years, it's just been argued. It hasn't been put into play yet, has it? It hasn't. It, what happened was, when it was first proposed, Senator Ted Stevens, who's a very prominent Republican senator from Alaska, said, and, and it, not a, someone you would call it a, you know, a screaming environmentalist, said, this is the wrong mine in the wrong place. You know, full stop. Build your mine somewhere else, but not in Bristol Bay. But the company was able to raise large chunks of money, and one by one, the major international mining companies came in as partners, Anglo-American, Mitsubishi, Rio Tinto. But all of them realized that this was an extraordinary place and also that this mine had serious obstacles to being built, and they, they abandoned it. Oh. They did. And then under the Obama administration, the Environmental Protection Agency was basically not going to give it the permits that it need to, needed to be built. They did a thorough scientific analysis and said, you know what, not here. And we all thought, oh boy, this is, looks like job done. <laughs> They're not going to build it. But then Trump was elected and he hired a guy named Scott Pruitt to run the Environmental Protection Agency. And Secretary Pruitt 
took a meeting with Northern Dynasty, and within the hour had released a memo changing direction and saying, let's move this thing into permitting. Well, Secretary Prude has now left the EPA, but as right now what's happening is this project is being fast-tracked to permitting under the Trump administration. The Corps of Engineers is in charge of the permitting. They're contracting a, a permitting process that would take much longer into a very short timeline to try to get it done before the fall 2020 presidential elections. So Northern Dynasty was really just waiting for this political opening. Oh, I think everybody was surprised by the outcome of the presidential election. I I mean, I shouldn't say everybody. I was certainly surprised. The Wild Salmon Center is working with excellent groups in in Alaska uh, to try to stop this. And we, luckily, we have very strong Republicans and Democrats on our board. I mean, we're not, we're an apolitical organization that cares about the fish. The other thing I want to mention about the organization, because there are a lot of conservation organizations Mm -hmm. and a lot of people just assume that they're grassroots. I'm not saying the Wild Salmon Center isn't grassroots, but they think that maybe there's not a lot of money. You know, they're fundraising to make maybe $10,000. You guys have power people and money behind you. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, you know, the Wild Salmon Center is not a huge organization. Our budget's about $6 million a year, but we're, we're very effective. I mean, when we're organized and again, our model is supporting local groups. So we're working hard and we're not alone. Other organizations are working on this too, but we have to slow this permitting process down and we will challenge the permitting every step of the way. And right now, scientists are poring over the environmental impact statement, which is the document describing the project. And we have found that it is a, they did a terrible job. They rushed the permitting. They did a lousy job. So it's going to be fairly easy to say, this proposal is not based on sound science and is very risky. And I think that, you know, the thing about the pebble mine is it's not a Democratic issue or a Republican issue. Right? This is an issue about what we want our country to look like in 20 or 30 years and have have this miracle uh, available to our kids and grandkids. So I think that we'll get more and more support on the Republican side and we can slow this process down and uh, hopefully we'll have a change in the political winds that will enable wiser heads to prevail and say, you know what, this is just not the right project. <sighs> this one's exhausting because I feel like there's so much to be said about it. So you really, right now, you guys don't know what's going on with that? I will say right now, I'd like to say we're winning, but we're not winning. We're losing right now. Because I'm going to throw you under the bus here, but I spoke to you one evening. I think you're in New York, so you were a little bit ahead of me. And I said, hey, how's it going? And you just sounded so exhausted, like you'd been <laughs> fighting something. And, and I think you had just lost. And I think you'd finally just sat down at the end of the day. Was that in relation to this? Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, this is what we wake up you know, uh, thinking about. And um, look, we are all, I mean, our kids and grandkids, if we let this project go, we'll be saying, how could you on your watch let this thing go through? So this is the kind of thing you have to be willing to fight and fight and fight and fight. You know, this is, they say, this is the hill to die on. And so we'll do that. I mean, I could be very Pollyannish and say, oh, we'll win, you know, but I'm telling you right now, they can, this thing could get the key permits it needs within 18 months. What can we do right now? Well, we absolutely need to comment on what's called the environmental impact statement, which is basically the permit that they need. Now, they rushed it, and it's it's pretty shabby, and uh, that's what happens when they rush something like this. 
and the scientists are just tearing it apart based on uh, inadequate scientific uh, foundation for it. But the people can really do to help is go on our website and write a letter and comment that you do not support the environmental impact statement. I mean, in particular, they don't model or take into account the possibility of a failure of the tailings dam, a catastrophic failure, such as what happened in Brazil and what's happened in British Columbia and what's happened on the Animas River in in New Mexico. And there are other elements to the EIS, the environmental impact statement, that are faulty. But go on our website, and you'll have a way to do that. And if you love Bristol Bay and you love wild fish, please send in a comment. But a comment doesn't necessarily need to be this well-composed letter. Can a comment be as simple as, hey, bastards, get out? Can it be that simple? Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. So I'll include a link. It'd be great to see if we could pull together and get a, a million comments. We need to get a million comments. And, and that's what it's going to take. But people love this place. And so I think we can get there. But that means everybody should take a minute to do that. Literally one minute. And not just if you love Bristol Bay. I mean, a lot of people have never been to Alaska. But I think that it really sets an example to these companies and also to ourselves to see what can happen when we band together. Okay, moving over the coast. I see that we've got the Skeena and the Dinas bright red, which makes me happy. Not that it's in any sort of um, strife, of course, but just that you guys are, or that we are. I mean, I guess I'm part of the Wild Salmon Center now. You're on my board of directors. Thank you And for you that. are my boss. <laughs> You're <a> boss, right. <laughs> so we're going to focus on this. When I'm back in the Skeena region, I'm going to sit down with the guys to talk more about it. Yeah. Uh, talk to me about all these red marks that I'm seeing throughout Washington, Oregon, and California. Well, we looked at the Pacific Northwest and we realized that some of the best opportunities to get, you know, really watershed level protection of wild fish is on the coastal systems that flow out of the temperate rainforests into the ocean. And the reason is there's not a lot of dams that they have, the fish have to go through and the rivers are basically pretty intact and a lot of them are already on public land. So if you're a conservationist and you, you know, that's expensive land to buy at $6,000 an acre if you have to buy it. But if it's on public land and you can get the rules to set aside buffers on both sides of the river, uh, you can get it done. I mean, it's you get a lot of protection for a relatively low investment compared to having to buy it. So if you choose a river that's got lots of public land, it's easier to protect it. And so we looked at those systems, and uh, we said, th- this can work. And those systems, really the last best, are on the Olympic Peninsula of Washington and the coast of Oregon. And these these systems are fantastic. I mean, these are massive producers of, uh, you know, Chinook salmon, steelhead, cutthroat trout, and they're beautiful. And so the threats to them really fall into a couple of categories. One is clear-cut logging. Now, we're certainly not against logging and forestry, but we think if it's an important salmon river, they should be big buffers on both sides of the stream to protect it from, you know, you know, we need that habitat protected so that it doesn't get washed downstream basically in the wintertime. What is the legal buffer? Because my good friend Kate Taylor the other day posted on Instagram a recently logged area in Oregon and the buffer zone is embarrassing. It was literally like this wide. I mean, it, it couldn't be legal, could it? Well, I, you know, it's hard to tell because was it on state? federal or private land. Oh, so the buffer zones differ in each? It's a little complicated. Mm. Oregon, unfortunately, has the weakest riparian buffer rules in the American West. Washington and California both have bigger buffers. And so we're working now with the State Department of Forestry and the Board of Forestry to expand those buffers. And, you know, the problem is really the very headwater streams have almost no buffers. And the reason this is important 
is because, you know, in, in the coast of Oregon in particular and the Pacific Northwest, in the winter we get these big wet storm systems that come in. And we project with the projected impacts of climate change that this will increase as the ocean heats up and big chunks of moisture get stuck in the jet stream and wash basically like a fire hose to the coast. We get these drenching rains and, and it's a rain forest. So that's normal. The problem is if the buffer is not wide enough, they'll wash everything out of the river and take it down to the bedrock. For example, there's a river that I love to fish called the Trask River in Oregon. And the local scientists there told me the South Fork of the Trask had a huge population of fall Chinook. I mean, there were hundreds of big 30, 40-pound fall Chinook laying their eggs, and it was terrific. And that year, a big wet storm came and washed everything out and took the whole system down to the bedrock. So that's a big catastrophic uh, loss of habitat. So unless we create bigger buffers on each side of the river, those big wet storms will just take everything out. And it's one of the major limiting factors for, for Chinook salmon production. So the first thing we need to do is protect the headwaters on public land. And then on private land, we need to make sure that there's enough buffers on both sides. So those are rules that we're advocating to be changed, to be expanded. And then finally, the last piece is these rivers have a little bit, you know, they have floodplain habitat down next to the mouth of the river. And a lot of that's in agriculture. Well, the more that we can do to work with the farmers to try to create little habitats and create more off-channel habitats, the more we'll increase the productivity of the river system. So those are little side channels and log jams and so on. And then finally, uh, there's good wild fish populations on the Oregon coast. And so what we've done is we got the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife working with them to, to designate a certain number of rivers as wild fish only places. And this is a big deal because our hatchery system has an important role in some places, but it keeps expanding. So we need to have some rivers managed for wild fish. Is this new? This happened a few years ago, actually. So okay. it's about four years old, but it's important because it's very hard to get this. Washington mm. State has hatchery programs on almost every river. It becomes tougher. Oregon doesn't yet. And so we've basically got them to, to designate some of these wild fish areas. And guess what? The sport fishermen are very happy about it. If you want to go catch a wild fish and catch and release, you have a place to go. And so we're very happy about that. It was a good opportunity. But my, the main point of this, uh, what I'm describing is we have a chance to get wild salmon protected on the Oregon coast. And um, it's a long-term project. And there's you know, there's challenges there, of course, but it's an opportunity and one that we have to take advantage of. And finally, the last thing I'll describe on the Oregon coast is if you go down to southern Oregon and you get next to the California border, there's a series of extraordinary rivers that are really unique. The Umpqua, which is, you know, world famous. The Rogue, the the Smith River in northwest California, southwest Oregon. Then on the coast, the Chetco, the Winchuck, the Illinois uh, which is a tributary of the Rogue, and then the Klamath. These are unique rivers in a unique mountainous landscape with redwoods and really interesting trees and plant species, lots of big winter steelhead, summer steelhead, spring Chinook, fall Chinook. And this is a big focus for us. And we just, with our partners, were able to get the North Umpqua, a key part of the North Umpqua, designated as a special focus area for wildfish conservation. That just amazingly was signed by the president last week, uh, President Trump, as part of a larger bill. And so as we move down the Oregon coast from the temperate rainforest and then down to the area just north of California, you're in the something called the Klamath and Siskiyou ecoregion, which is a really interesting mountain range that has 
was once an island group in the Pacific Ocean that millions of years ago was pushed against the edge of North America. So it has a different rock formation Ah. and hence a lot of really interesting and strange plants that grow there. And so in addition, it has world-class steelhead and salmon runs and a lot of public land. So that's land that we don't have to buy. I mean, it's, it's, it belongs to us, citizens, and so we can protect it. So we think that is the chance to create really a regional stronghold for wild fish there. And out of that beautiful mountain range flows another river into California called the Klamath. And the Klamath was once one of the great steelhead and salmon rivers in North America until it was dammed with four main stem dams, which decimated the salmon runs. Well, amazingly, the company that owned the dams, Pacificor, realized that they are no longer economically viable and is supporting taking them out. Oh. So those dams are coming out, and that will open up the whole watershed, millions of acres. Who's cost? Uh, the cost is being paid by the state of Oregon and the state of Washington, uh, state of California and the state of Oregon. And Pacific Corps is agreeing to take the dams out. And it looks now like those dams are coming out. And so this will create an opportunity for the Klamath to be one of the great salmon and steelhead and trout rivers of the American West. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah. It's totally cool. How much pull did you guys have with that? Oh, we, we were just one player. I think the groups that really led that were American Rivers and Trout Unlimited and a remarkable group called Sustainable Northwest, where that nobody knows a lot about, not, not as much as they should, but they're very effective behind the scenes. And under their leadership, they got a deal made in the Klamath Basin to say, you know what, let's do this. So Sustainable Northwest gets a big nod for that one. That is fantastic. And so Wild Salmon Center is working with the scientists and the fish managers on how to reintroduce the fish into the system once the dams come out. How are you going to do that? Well, it's very tricky. And and so the, the challenge is the fish that lived in the upper basin are mostly spring Chinook. Now, Chinook come in two types, well, three types. But the ones that come in the fall are the fall Chinook. But in the beginning of the year, there's a race of Chinook that come in called spring Chinook that all Chinook spawn in the fall. But in some of these rivers, these fish come in in like May and April and May, and they are, we've done genetic analysis, and they look just like a normal Chinook, but they're genetically different, and they have a certain gene that makes them go all the way to the headwaters and spend the whole summer there waiting before they spawn. And they do this because they can capitalize on that habitat. But it's a very tough life to basically be in these pools all summer long when things are getting warm. But the spring Chinook, from a fisherman's standpoint, is the Holy Grail. I mean, these fish pull impossibly hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, they could pull, I mean, they just, they never give up. And of course, because they come in in the spring and they're nothing but fat and vim and vigor and they're not spawning for six months or five months. And so they have all the energy in their muscles. And that's why from an eating standpoint, the best salmon of all is a spring Chinook. I mean, it just bursts into flames on the grill. It has so many lipids in it and oils. And you can tell I've, completely obsessed about catching spring chinook. (laughs) But so the long story short is we can find a genetically similar population of springers that we can use to jumpstart them in the upper watershed. Maybe that we can get them started there and reintroduce them. So this isn't the same as using hatchery fish then? Well, we're looking at it right now. The problem is the native Klamath spring chinook are so close to extinction that we may not be able to get enough to reintroduce them. Mm -hmm. So we may have to bring some over from the Rogue River or even maybe the Umpqua. And this will be a question for the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, but our scientists are working with their scientists on a plan. If we were to use a hatchery program, it would only be for a couple of generations, and then we'd just stop. 
The danger with hatcheries is if you keep them in, they eventually displace the wild fish. So if your goal is wild fish, you can only use them temporarily. Keto, I've been staring at this beautiful book that's in front of me. It's very aesthetically pleasing called Stronghold by Tucker Malarkey, who I I believe is your cousin. The book is called Stronghold, but it says right under it, one man's quest to save the world's wild salmon. This is about you. Yes. And I mean, it's not one man. Of course, it's a whole team of people passionate, but, um, can you elaborate on it? I mean, right on it, you've got Tom Brokaw's obviously made a statement or testimony on the front page. Talk to me about what the book is. Well, what happened was Tucker's an amazing writer. You know, we all fish the shoots together every year, and she finally just said, you know, these stories that Guido keeps bringing back are just rich, and, you, and I'm going to write a book about it. <laughs> I'm going to write these down. And I said, well, you should write those down. And she wrote those down and drafted what's really a conservation thriller. I mean, the genre is narrative nonfiction, but it, it, it reads like a conservation thriller. And she tells the whole story of Pacific salmon, their decline, the battle to save them, the explorations in the Russian Far East, the expeditions that we took, and weaves the story that um, I didn't know there was such a story there, but you really can't put the book down once you start reading it. What I really like about this book is a, a lot of people have interesting stories, and so the books are composed in a way where it's a series of short stories. This book's really interesting because she takes all of your experiences and she she stitches them together and puts together a from start to finish timeline. Everyone knows I love timelines. Uh, but really, it's a timeline uh, that navigates your entire story. So can you pick one story in particular that really stands out to you that she discusses in the book? Sure. I mean, the most exciting thing, you know, really for, for me recently has been the chance to explore the giant Taman rivers of the northern part of the Russian Far East with Misha Skopets, my my partner, colleague, uh, who lives in Habarovsk. And um we we knew about this river called the Tagore because you know we knew of it. Scopets had done a, done a rapid assessment of it, but it was really there was a lot of poaching, and and I was never able to get there. And then we found out that those fishing leases had been purchased by a very prominent Russian businessman named Alexander Abramov, and Alexander was the former head of the physics department at Moscow State University. So he's a, a an academic really, but also a quant quantitatively strong and he turned up teamed up with another very prominent powerful russian and formed one of russia's largest i think their largest steel company that he owns well alexander is unique in that he's a crazy fisherman and he loves fishing for taman and so he went to this river called the tugor got in there in a helicopter you know he'd been trying to go all over russia to break the 50 pound mark you know with taman i think on that trip he told me he caught an 80 and a 90 pounder or something and just said this is it. I've found it. And he bought the fishing leases for that river and set up a camp, a beautiful camp, and really was for Alexander and his friends. And he got a helicopter and he brought jet boats in or these fishing boats. And so we'd heard about this. And finally, I got an introduction from Ilya Sherbovich, who was generous enough to make the introduction. And I got a hold of Alexander and he said, Guido, I want you to come and fish with me in my camp. And I'd like you to see if you can teach me how to fly fish for my taman. And so, of course, any fisherman is just going to say, are you kidding me? I think, is this a hallucination or a dream? Or am I actually (laughs) going to go into this new territory with these giant taman? 
So we flew in there, and actually, I went first with Ilya and some friends, and we fished our brains out for a week and didn't catch hardly anything. We just these fish were harder to catch than we thought. Mm. And then we came back, and Alexander invited me to join him and his men. And so I met him in the Russian Far East and jumped in the helicopter with Alexander and his entourage. And we flew into his camp, and I was the full immersion in the Russian experience. I mean, we were drinking vodka at the dinner, making long toasts, going to take the sauna. And he's like, Gida, you take the sauna. It's required. <laughs> so I'm like, I love saunas. <laughs> then we're in the sauna with Alexander and all, all of his men. And we went out on the river each day fishing. And we fished and fished and fished, but the river was high and could not connect with a big taman. And believe me, we were, I was, we were fishing like maniacs, you know, different flies, different lines, different retrieves. But it turned out there were fish, giant taman in here, but there weren't a lot of them. They're mm. an apex predator, like a tiger. So you're not going to see big levels of abundance. Well, after a week with Alexander, I had arranged to explore the lower part of this river, which is an impenetrable jungle of side channels in a newly created protected area that we helped support the creation of, a 200,000-acre park in the lower river. And nobody, I mean, I don't think very many people had explored. And so we arranged an expedition to float it, and a separate leaf from Alexander. And I said, Alexander, you know, I'm done with you. Would your men run me downstream to the edge of your territory so I can meet this expedition? And we're going to explore the lower river. And he's like, okay. You know, he was very generous, of course, uh, to do that. But I asked him before that, I said, Alexander, how did you, you know, the poaching is just decimating these rivers. And he said, Gita, when I got here, every water, every gravel bar had poachers on it. Oh, really? Yeah, every gravel bar. And there were nets and piles of dead fish. And I said, well, how did you, how did you do that? You know, how did you deal with that? And he said, well, I basically brought in my own people, (laughs) my own fish inspectors. And yeah, of course they were armed. And, and he brought in his own men. And they clean things up. And I'll just put it this way. There's no poaching right now on, on the Tagore. <laughs> oh, to be a fly on one of those trees. I wonder. And I, and I said, Alexander, you know, I didn't learn about the strategy at the Yale Forestry School. <laughs> he said, you American environmentalists, you know, you play with your projects. We do things differently here. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, you know what, if it hadn't been for him and his men, there'd be no big taman left in the Tagore. And as it turns out, the river to the north and the river to the south are getting pounded. So Alexander took me downstream in two jet sleds, and it took us all day to get through. There were log jams that went from bank to bank. I mean, it was we had to cut our way through these log jams and these jet boats. And there was one boat with three armed men uh, with uh, Kalishnikovs, I think, or some kind of a Russian a military rifle, and then and then me in the other boat. And Tucker was on the gravel bar with the rest of the expedition with Misha Skopets, uh, the, our scientist, uh, my scientist friend. And we pull in with these jet boats and the men hop out and assume positions around the gravel bar. And Tucker's just looking at me just going, oh my gosh, this is just like out of, you know, a, like a thriller, <laughs> a like a James Bond or something. And I'm getting my fishing waders, Tucker, it's great to see you. <laughs> It was so funny. And the men were, of course, totally awesome. And, you know, this is a lawless and remote area, so they wanted to make sure I was safe, of course. (laughs) So then they left and went back upstream, and then we floated deep into the impenetrable and beautiful, mysterious um, labyrinth of side channels. So the whole river broke into maybe five channels and braids. And if you went down the wrong one, you could end up in a big whirlpool that goes under a log jam that could go for 100 yards or more. And so it was very tricky. 
we were floating down and, of course, fishing like crazy and fishing and fishing and fishing. And it was excitement because there were brown bears that were not afraid of us. And so there were places that we had to just keep rowing, of course. And it was almost like the river belonged to the bears and the salmon and the eagles. You know, these Stellar's eagles, they look like they're just huge. In the spring, they feed on seal pups. Oh, my goodness. Okay. I know that this is like a... You know, it's like kind of like, like Jurassic ice, Park. Like Jurassic Park. So we floated down and floated down, and I was with um, a great team of people: Marius Rubluski from my staff, Scopets, Mark Weeks, Charlie Kahn, and we fished and fished and fished. And finally, on this dark, cloudy day, I was swinging, you know, this run and swinging and stripping. Oh, it started! I was fishing this pool. And at the end of my cast, I lifted my line out, and I had a big 10-inch streamer, and this taman exploded oh. out of the pool on my fly as it left the water and oh. was going to my rod tip. And I mean, most fishermen have had that happen once in a while, and yeah. fishes fo- that follow up at the end, and you realize, Shit. and it was triggered because I was stripping fast, getting ready to bring it in. It just, I mean, I was looking right at the taman with his mouth open and his eyes like crossed on that fly. I'll never forget it. <laughs> And I went, whoa! And of course, the, he hit the water, turned around, and of course, I cast him like a maniac, and he didn't come back. But I thought, you know, it was that dark, kind of brown trout weather, you know, when it's it dark and rainy. Middle of the day, it just felt fishy. And then I waded across, and I went down this run, and I'm casting, swinging, and all of a sudden, I was stripping, and it just, <clears throat> and it was like a wall. And you're thinking, is that a, a log? Because there's <laughs> logs everywhere. But I, I was set on, I set on everything, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Like this, you know, and we were fishing 10 weight spay rods with shooting heads and running line and stripping big streamers. Oh, you were? Okay. So went tight, like I'm just, I'm just come on. And then all of a sudden, just, <laughs> and the head shakes were just like, <laughs> and I was like, my adrenaline level just kind of went like a meter, just, you know? first fish of the week. First big fish. We've yeah. been catching smaller ones. And then he came to the surface and started thrashing. And it was a, it was a huge taman. Its body was kind of olive brown. Its tail was red. They have a bright red tail. And he was just thrashing on the surface like a, as thick as a railroad tie. And we were like, okay, if this fish turns around and, and runs downstream, there are log jams everywhere. We're not going to get him. So at this point, other fishermen that were with me came running down and we just put the wood to him and just said, we're not going to let you go anywhere. And I was able to fight him pretty quickly. And it turns out some of these taman will let you do that and other ones just take off. Mm. And some of them jump like crazy too. They're very unusual, but they're not really afraid of the angler. You know, like a, a, a steelhead or a chinook sees you, it'll start running from you. And it'll like try to, but these fish didn't really care that I was, <laughs> if I, you know, was, he's the top predator. So he landed that fish. I think it was 67 pounds. Oh, how many inches is a 67 pounder? Oh, you know, I don't remember how many inches it was. It was about five feet, four, four and a half feet, five feet. It was big enough that it was really hard to hold. Yeah. Because you can't hold it like, like this. You certainly can't extend it towards the camera, you know, if you want to make it look big. You can barely even, ha- I could barely even hang on to it. It was like wrestling with an alligator. I put both of my arms underneath it and was able to hold it up. But then I was able to actually wade out into the water with it once we got a few pictures and actually hold it in the water. And it was interesting was it was so fat. It was the end of the season. It was a fall trip. So it had been eating chum salmon. So it was built like a big fat trout. 
That is, cr- I'd love to see a picture of that. Oh uh, yeah, it was such a beautiful fish. It was a, it was a great moment. Well, I'm really looking forward to reading this. Um, we've been talking forever. Is there anything that I've missed that you would like to add? I mean, obviously we can circle back and I can talk to you more about specific systems in throughout the year, but is there anything in particular that you'd like to add or ask me? No, I just, I love telling these stories and, and reliving them with you. It's, it's really nice. So thank you. It's an honor to be here. So I appreciate it. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device. When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.